Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And today we have Jamie Ritchie, who is the worldwide head of Sotheby's Wine. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. And today we really want to talk about the wine auction market and sort of get an overview of that space and understand like how it works for consumers as well as for sellers, but also on the business side. Great. So could you give us a brief background of Sotheby's and specifically the fine wine part of it? Sure. So Sotheby's is a very old company. It was founded in 1744. The wine part of it started in 1970. We started commenced our wine auctions in London in 1970. And then we expanded to New York when the regulations changed in New York in 1994. And we opened up in Hong Kong in 2009. So alongside that, we do run a retail business, which we opened in New York in 2010 and Hong Kong 2014. So yeah, we've been yeah, mostly selling wines with some spirits along that time. We actually started really putting a lot of emphasis into our spirits business actually last year in 2019. So in 2018, we were only selling 3% of our sales by value were, were spirits. Last year, it was 13%, and this year, it's already gone up to 19%. So I would say, yeah, we were really in the wine business up until last year, and now we, we are in definitely in the wine spirits. And in terms of giving an overview of the wine auction process, I'm assuming that some people who are listening may not understand exactly the mechanics of auctioning wine and what it means for the different parties involved. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the overall process, like how you guys get wines, evaluation, like what's a good consigner look like? What does a good seller look like? So, yeah, I would say that in the auction business, 80% of our mental energy and 50% of our physical time goes into finding collections to sell. And so we do put a lot of our work into trying to source the wines, and they come through a variety of different sources. Obviously, people do come to us for our reputation having heard of us. We obviously have relationships with many of the collectors and people we work with. So buyers also become sellers at times. So we work hard on building relationships, and obviously those relationships often become friends as well because wine's so sociable. And so the wines essentially come to us, or we go to people and solicit them to, uh, to sell wine. But essentially, a large part of our business is really trying to find great property to sell. Once we have a list of wines, we provide auction estimates, so which is a low estimate, our high estimate, and also a suggested reserve, which is a minimum price that's confidential between us and the seller. The estimates are published for the public to look at and to base some bidding around. So once we have the estimates agreed and the list of wines agreed that we're going to sell, we then go through the logistics process, which is, you know, where are the wines? How are we going to inspect, pack and ship them and photograph them? And in which order do we do that, depending upon where the wines are lying? So we have teams that go out to sellers and to collections and we'll physically go there and we'll do it ourselves. We have other times where we pick up the wines and we'll do that inspection in our warehouse. Uh, so that really depends. And of course, we have to agree the terms of the arrangement and sign this consignment agreement. So the, the terms of the financial arrangements between us and the seller. And then when we sign that agreement, it's a very standard uh, boilerplate agreement for that. And so then once we've gone through, once we have the wines inspected, we go through the data entry process of putting it into our IT systems. And then we move into presentation. So how do we present the wine? So what, what does Bordeaux go first? Does Bourgogne go first? What goes first in Bordeaux? What goes first in Bourgogne? We're getting young to old, old to young. Which producers are we putting first? So we're thinking about how do we present this in order to maximize the value of, of uh, consignment. And, and obviously, all we're, what we're doing around this is always figuring out how to maximize the value of the property we're selling. 
So it sounds like this, what, what's interesting is that the selling is the easy part, which is really different than the primary like winery problem where they have to work on selling the wine. For you, it sounds like finding the wine to sell is the hard problem and actually liquidating and selling in the secondary market isn't that much of a challenge for you. Right. So finding great stuff to sell that is in strong demand is the biggest challenge for us, for sure. And when we talk about pricing, which I'm sure we'll come to a little bit later on, that's what drives our pricing model. But yes, finding great stuff. So when I first joined in 1990 back in London, you know, we used to put the catalogs together, send them out and sort of wait for everyone to react and wait for the auction day. Now we're a little bit different to that. We do work the buy side very, very hard and we're contacting clients. You know, we also use all the digital tools at our fingertips to be able to reach new clients and, and reach new people. So we're trying to constantly expand our client base. We're also you know, reaching out to our individual contacts. So we do work that side a lot harder than we ever used to, you know, certainly 30 years ago when I joined the company. And so from then, so we, we go through all the presentation. So yeah, whether we're printing a catalog or we're using, yeah, we have new tools to present digital catalogs online now, which are fantastic. And so yeah, we figure out all the presentation of it, and then we obviously start publishing it, and then we start marketing it. And so that process is a little bit different to a live auction to an online auction. Yeah, the process is much more condensed than an online auction. Yeah, we're normally open for somewhere between 10 to 17 days. In a live auction, traditionally, you know, by the time you mail the catalogue and send it around, you know, you'd be more like three to four weeks. And then obviously there's the anticipation building up to the auction day, whether that's online or live. We have the either the electronic fall of the hammer or the auctioneer's gavel, which falls, and that determines the final price that the buyer is going to pay with a buyer's premium. And it determines the, the amount of money that the seller will receive. We then go through the process of invoicing. So we invoice the buyers, we go through collection of the money and the funds the buyers pay us, including any shipping that's due and any, set, any taxes that are due. And then we remit the funds to the seller and the wines get shipped or collected by the buyer. And then so, that's roughly, yeah, so roughly the process is somewhere between, you know, six weeks and three months, depending upon what cycle is. We do obviously work on certain collections for six months, nine months, a year. So one of our focuses is single owner sales and, and selling the largest, most prestigious collections. And often with those, we're working on them yeah, for minimum of six months to, to maybe two years ahead because yeah, they're, they're complex organizations. We might be moving wines around the world. They might be very, very significant collections. Yeah, the largest we sold was Transcendent Wines at $30 million. And so there was a big logistics operation as well as marketing. So I was just wondering, what role do wine auctions play versus other fine retail? Is it in terms of price setting for very rare things where you don't understand the price of the wine or the estimate is really hard or it can be a wide range? Or how is that different? And what are, in general, what are the benefits of going the auction route? So I think auction and retail are entirely complementary and you really need both markets as a wine lover and collector. In the auction market, you're mostly dealing with rare wines or you're dealing with you know, full cases of wines. So if you want to be buying you know, old rare wines from any region around the world with problems being vetted by a team of auctioneers, or you want to buy full cases of Bordeaux, Burgundy from young to old, then you know, auction is a great place to source them. In terms of retail, you know, if you're wanting to buy futures or if you wanted to buy yeah, the latest vintages of Burgundy that have just been released, or particularly white Burgundy, you know, a lot of white Burgundy, a lot of champagne, then retail is going to be your best place for that. So retail is a much more diverse market where you buy by the bottle or by the case, whatever quantity you like. And auction is a more sort of fixed marketplace. So I actually think that they're both unbelievably complementary and you find you know, different choices and different avenues in each one. 
And the wine auction market has been growing quite a bit lately. According to Wine Spectator in 2019, it was a record $521 million in wine sold. Is the market, do you see it continuing to rise over time? So yes, uh, the market is generally around $500 million a year. Obviously, yeah, that is cyclical. Last year was a particularly good market for all of us in that business. You know, we had record sales for us of $118 million across our three locations, London, New York, and Hong Kong. And that was a record year. We we're up 20% on the previous year, and that was up 40% on the previous year. So we have had a very, very significant run in that. You know, obviously, this year is a little bit different, you know, affected by COVID, which has really fundamentally changed how we've been able to operate. So not only is it, has it meant that there has been less wine coming onto the market, but we haven't been able to move around freely to do it. Yeah, even today, so I'm actually in the south of France today. I'm under quarantine here. Some colleagues of mine are up in northern part of Europe. Another one is in the western part of Europe. And yeah, we're all yeah, navigating the COVID situation, the regulations. And we've been doing that, you know, all the time. So it's been very, very difficult to get people, our colleagues, around to collections, to move collections around. And that has challenged us you know, pretty significantly. So that's definitely contributing to a lower value and volume on the marketplace. Having said that, the market has remained very, very consistently strong. So I wouldn't say we're in a rising market, but we're not in a falling market. So we haven't adjusted our prices since pre-COVID, which is sort of super interesting. Because if you look back to 2008, after Lehman Brothers went down, you know, prices came down by 40%. And it was only wow. you know, really when the, uh, you know, April 2009, when we held our first sale in Hong Kong. So when Lehman Brothers went down, I was actually in Hong Kong setting up our auction. And the mainland Chinese started coming back and coming to the market at that time. And the you know, wine prices were the first of, of any of the commodities to really bounce back. And they came back very, very quickly and much faster than art or other marketplaces. Yeah, this time, yeah, I would, my biggest fear was that that would happen and you know, our market would be down you know, somewhere between 20 and 40 percent. And that never happened. And I think that never happened for a couple of reasons. One is obviously the stock market bounced back very, very quickly. And in the meantime, there was very little volume of wine on the marketplace. Everyone being stuck at home with a enthusiasm for enjoying wine, but having to do it at home <laughs> meant that with low volumes on the marketplace and everyone being stuck at home with maybe more time on the hands to look at our auctions and to replenish, then yeah, the market has, has remained very strong. So I think we have a consistent market. In general, around the marketplace, I think it's sort of super interesting because we have a younger and younger uh, group of buyers getting interested in wine. And obviously, those collectors don't have wine in their cellars. They need to buy it if they want to enjoy it. And you have you know, wealth being created by a more diverse group of people at younger ages all around the world. And then you have geographic diversity. And so you have new buyers coming from you know, throughout Asia, Russia, India, Latin America, as well as those of us in North America and Europe who continue to enjoy wine. So I think you've got a growing demand, so a growing number of people, both demographically and geographically, who want to buy you know, what is effectively fine wine, and fine wine is in limited supply by the nature of the vineyards and the Appalachians, etc. The vineyards yeah, in the old world are fully planted. So I think long-term, the prognosis for the price of wine is it will rise because there's more and more people are going to want to drink what is yeah, fixed in supply. We get one new vintage a year, less what's been consumed in that year, plus what's been been accounted for. So I think the long-term prognosis for the price of wine is it does right. Sotheby's in 2019 was number two globally, but number one in the UK, Europe, and Hong Kong, and Shanghai. I'm curious on what has led to the growth and diversification in those locations. 
So I think if you look at Asia first, Asia, we started in 2009, our sales there. We started in our first year, we had $40 million of sales in 2009. We went to 55 million in 2010 in our second year. So unbelievable growth. Since that time, the Asian wine bar has been the least price sensitive. So I think if you take a step back from 1994, when we started our wine auctions, when the regulations changed permitting wine auctions in New York State, through to mid-2008, the American wine bar was the least price sensitive. So there was a huge transfer of wine from Europe to the US. From 2009 onwards, because Asian buying started you know, bringing the market back, yeah, we, you can see that there's a sudden shift into going from nothing in 2008 to 55 million in 2010, that we were shipping a lot of wine from Europe and from the US for sale in, America, in Hong Kong. And the reason we started in Hong Kong was another regulatory feature, was the Hong Kong tax rate went to zero. So it enabled us to ship wine for, you know, to Hong Kong for the price of a container, which is you know, six to $10,000. So you're never going to make anything more expensive, as the, the taxes in the US are illustrated today with the 25% taxes on French wines. Spanish and German, uh, UK. And so that enabled us to start that market and it really ignited. So we do continue today to ship a number of collections from Europe and from the US to Asia for sale. And our largest sale in Hong Kong in our most recent series you know, was shipped from the US. So the reason that that is such a dominant bond market for us is because you know, we, we do support it by selling wines from Europe and the US, as well as sourcing wines from Asia for that cell location. We have a, a, an outstanding team there. We've, we've been very dedicated to it. We also benefit from yeah, having Sotheby's offices and colleagues in Shanghai, Beijing, Taiwan, Taipei, yeah, in Bangkok, in Indonesia, in Japan. And so all of those colleagues are obviously working with their clients in the local languages. And so we have a very, very strong support system, as well as our centered offices in Hong Kong. So that is sort of um, the, the Hong Kong market, and again, driving the price of worldwide wine today. In the UK is a less competitive auction marketplace, but a more competitive fine wine marketplace with the trade, the brokers, the dealers in the UK being, being sort of competing rather than the auction houses. So it's a little bit different in that marketplace. But I would say the US is yeah, the most competitive auction marketplace with the most competitors uh, participating. So I think you've got a combination of those factors, plus the fact that we send a lot of uh, wines to Hong Kong that alter those statistics a little bit. Does that mean that we'll get less European wines here in the U.S. with tariffs available for auction and also with Brexit happening that the U.K. will become less of a hub? So first of all, for the U.S., yes, that is true. So while those taxes remain in place, we will not ship collections to the U.S. from outside the U.S. for sale. So you know, we're looking at collections um, north of the border, south of the border and in Europe that we would usually bring to the U.S. for sale. And we will not bring them to the for sale. So they will either go to Europe, to the UK, to London, or to Hong Kong. Definitely. And so, um, and then, yeah, that's a sad part of the US marketplace because it is you know, taking supply and choice away from the US. So we hope that the, the tax situation is resolved and we go back to a much more favorable tax situation than the 25% currently. As for Brexit, I think that is really going to be very, very interesting. I think many of us are looking at what are the options in selling in Europe. And we're pursuing a course of action that will um, mitigate any factor with Brexit. So we're not, for our business across the board, we're not thinking it's going to be a, a net negative. We actually think it'll be a net positive for us. But we will have to adapt our business in the UK and in Europe. So I'm curious because you have all these different hubs for the wine and you're, you're obviously moving some to these other markets because of the tariffs that are here in the US. But what happens, everything's now online, essentially. What happens when someone buys 
from one location to the other. Is that a responsibility on the buyer to get it from one location to the other, or is that something that you handle inside of your network with logistically? So uh, the, that's a complex question, as you know, because the regulatory environment is not easy with alcohol and with wine, and even more complex with spirit. And so there are certain things which we enable for client for buyers, and certain things which we absolutely need them to do. So, for example, we do offer shipments from New York to Hong Kong on a container. We have you know, three containers a year which go out there, and that's an easy one for us to facilitate. There's no tax in Hong Kong, and so again, it's the cost of the container to do that. With regard to moving wine around the US, I think you're well, well versed in the complexities of that. And that really is the same around the world. So some countries are easy to import export and some aren't. And so, yeah, where it's easy for us to facilitate it and there's no big tax burden or security issue, and we, we will do that. But generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, it is the buyer's responsibility to navigate how to get their wines once they purchase them. So as a follow-on question, a lot of the auction market has becoming increasingly more online. In fact, I've been forced to kind of go online with the pandemic. I'm curious on how do you see virtual auctions differing from in-person auctions? And is there a preference for the size of the collection based on you know the, the venue for it? So yeah, I mean, I think we've gone through a, an enormous digital transition in our business. I mean, yeah, in, I think we're planning something like six online auctions and 20 live auctions this year. I think we're going to end up doing something like 40 online auctions and maybe six or seven live auctions. So yeah, we had to change very, very quickly. We had to make those decisions very early. And then we had to obviously work with our colleagues who are unbelievably sort of uh, yeah, smart and intuitive about it. We had to work with our technology teams. We had to work with, yeah, with our processes to adapt and to change. And yeah, the online environment is very, very different. We were lucky to have a new online platform that Sotheby's had developed and that Wine was already transitioning to it. But I would say the digital transition has speeded up our change by somewhere two to five years. And we did that in roughly three months. And so I think with the, with the online auctions, yeah, they're here to stay for sure. Yeah, the benefits are that yeah, people who, who can do it on their mobile phone with the app. Yeah, they can do it you know, on an iPad. They can do it in transit. They get much more transparency in terms of pricing. They can see where the bid prices are. They get uh, bid notifications. Yeah, the filtering is easy to use. And so, yeah, all of those tools, and, and yeah, we're adding more tools. We probably have, you know, 10 things in development and we'll be rolling them out yeah, with some this year and some early next year. And so the tools are getting more and more sophisticated. And yeah, the online channel, I think, is the channel of the future. Live auctions will not go away. They won't disappear. They are an exciting moment. Yeah, they bring together great collections, people, yeah, wine is a social thing. We need to get together and enjoy it and consume it. Consumption is important. And so I think they continue, but they become rarer and for the more special collections than they do. And the, if you like, the marketplace for wine becomes the online auctions on a much more regular basis. I would say last year, looking at the auction offers and emails that I get and catalogs, it seemed like the online auctions for the big auction houses were really kind of like smaller, like not full cases, not as rare of a collection. They were kind of like piecemeal offerings or smaller, like two or three bottles instead of instead of full cases. That mindset has completely shifted now in 2020. Or do you think that that is still somewhat true that people are thinking of online as like slightly smaller scale? So I, mean, I think that depends upon the model which each auction house is running. And I think that certainly was the model. And one of the reasons why we didn't engage with the online environment earlier, A, we didn't have the best platform to do it. 
And number two was we didn't want to bifurcate it, whereas this is cheap wine and this is expensive wine, or this is better wine, this is less good wine. We really wanted to have the same process across the channel. So I don't think we're not about what quality is in each channel, but wanting to have both yeah, the same level of quality, the same level of property, the same level of proofing, checking, inspection. But I think I think as we go forward, you know, if you like the marquee sales, uh, single owner collections are the very prestigious ones with specific problems will tend to be the ones that have the live auctions and yeah, and the sort of celebratory nature of that. And the online auctions will become the common marketplace for all quality levels of wine. Yeah, you mentioned the social aspect of the in-person auctions. And, you know, I haven't actually been to one, but seeing movies like Sour Grapes with the counterfeiter Rudy Kunwardian, it seemed like a great time. <laughs> and that's where a lot of people and collectors get to know each other and potentially build networks and build societies of people who bid on auctions, right? How do you maintain some of those benefits with the online auctions? Well, I I think you can still have events. You can still have bidding parties. You can still get together with the online auction. So the social side of wine and the job side, we we work in wine. So it's not only our business, but it's probably our passion as well. Otherwise, we'd probably find a more lucrative career somewhere else. But we, we always have to recognize that for our clients, this is their hobby, their passion, their fun. And we need to um, enjoy that with them and engage with them. So I think the tasting components, the fun, the camaraderie, the sharing is super important and will continue to be in our business. And so we don't think that the events, the tastings, the getting together with people, sharing bottles is going to diminish at all. I just think it probably happens in a slightly different way. I think it probably happens in slightly smaller groups. Uh, it happens probably more frequently. And I think you know, with live auctions, I think there's going to be more occasions where we convene a group of people in different parts of the world to participate in an auction that's happening. Yeah, we, we've certainly done that already with sales like the Robert Dryer sale where we had a dinner in Hong Kong going on at the same time as the auction in London. And so I think that sort of continues to happen. I don't think the consumption part, you can't separate enjoyment and consumption from any sale of wine process. Yeah, uh, and thankfully. So as the business changes with online and other ways, is that changing the business model of wine auctions in terms of differentiating buyer's premiums or, you know, the seller commission you take from sellers? So I don't think, I mean, I think the fundamentals of what were of the economic model is pretty similar. So I don't think that really changes yet. It, it still costs the same amount of money effectively to process it, whether it's going live or online. Maybe you have some economies in the online version, but in fact, we tend to photograph much more than we did in a live auction catalog. So you've still got some similarities and differences. I think the, the economic model remains much the same. I think the bar's premium you know, is there to stay. I think you, know, you were talking about the issue of the bar's premium you know, being there and, and what our issue is, is in sourcing. And our main issue is in sourcing. So the reason that, that there's a buyer's premium rather than yeah, a seller's commission is because the focus is on finding and sourcing the property to sell. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we can sell it. It's just how well do we sell. And so that is why the, the buyer's premium remains there. So I think the economic model remains much the same. I don't think online auctions change that. You have different competitors operating different models at different price points. And that will, you know, that will remain you know, different and each one will operate their own price model and you know, depending upon what their business is. You know, we sell, you know, in, in selling $180 million last year, you know, we did that and signed about 18,000 lots and that's $7,500 a lot. So whilst we do sell things at you know, $25, $50 a model, you know, our average lot price is $7,500. And so it's not a smaller value than that. 
So the buyer's premiums in general across the, the one auction space seem to be going up over time. And I'm curious on what is driving that increase? Is it purely about profitability or does that help you facilitate to source better collections? Like what is the rationale for increasing that premium over time? So yeah, so two things. One is we need to remain profitable, to remain in business. And so that is certainly driving it. We have the need to do that. Uh, and the number two thing is the competitive nature of the business. It is super competitive. And so in order to source the best collections, you know, we need to have the tools to be able to do that. And those tools mean that, unfortunately, the buyer premium has to increase and the competitive nature of the business has meant that that has gone up. So would you see there's an inverse relationship with the seller premiums? Because some auction sites have seller premiums. And I'm curious if your collections of a high enough prestige and provenance that you would expect a very low seller premium and that gets passed on to the end consumer through that buyer premium? Yes, I mean, and essentially, when um, yeah, before I started Sotheby's, yeah, there was no buyer's premium; there was a seller's commission, and so the pendulum has swung all the way. Uh, so I think it used to be, you know, well before I joined, there used to be a ten percent seller's commission and no buyer's premium, and then the buyer's premium was introduced, and the pendulum has continued to swing away from the seller's commission towards buyer's premium, and is at that end of the scale and remains there today. And I think while the major challenge for us in the auction business remains sourcing. I don't see that pendulum coming back because it's all about the sourcing. In terms of if you don't have property to sell, you don't have any revenue. And what would you say is like an average seller premium then, uh, or seller commission, sorry, on someone selling wine? We're not getting a lot of sellers, uh, sellers premium. It's not a material part of our business. I was surprised that the uh, buyer's premiums haven't also been going up as the need to inspect and with the rise of sort of counterfeits in the 2000s might put more burden on you guys. So, I mean, we have always been very, very vigilant about the authenticity issues. You know, when I first joined Sotheby's, yeah, I worked with Serena Sutcliffe and, and she'd inherited the role from David Monuberry. And David Monuberry had been you know, declining to sell you know, wines from Hardy Roanstock yeah, back in the 80s. And so there was a present there and we have done our utmost throughout, before my time and certainly through my time at Sotheby's to try not to sell counterfeit wines. It is a an issue that plagues the wine, the fine wine business. It plagues the spirits business as well. And I guess where there's a high enough value, people will try and take advantage. And so we do spend a lot of time on that. It is a, a not insignificant expense for our business to deal with all those issues of trying to authenticate wines. We take a view that it is not like if there's nothing apparently wrong with it, we will put it in. Um, it has to for us to put it into an auction. We have to yeah think it is absolutely genuine rather than, you know, if there's no reason to think it's not genuine. It is an issue. So in terms of wines that do well in the auction market, obviously Bordeaux and now Burgundy have been the classic drivers. What else is becoming more auctionable or investable in the wine auction market? So well, just talking about Bordeaux and Burgundy, Bordeaux has always been the backbone of the auction business. And you know, for many, many years, it was 70% of the business, particularly in the UK, but also in you know, 60, 65% in the US. And the same when we start in Hong Kong. Now, I mean, it is unthinkable to be in the position whereby Bordeaux shrunk to a less than 30% share. Uh, Burgundy is up to 40% share. And that is part by also the introductory spirits now taking a yeah, last year of 13% share. And so it's been a very, very interesting transition. And the rise in price of Burgundy and demand for Burgundy has been something we would never really have foreseen overtaking Bordeaux 10 years ago. And so that would be super interesting. As the price of Burgundy has risen, 
I think you've also seen people being priced out of the, the market of what they used to drink. Uh, yeah, the same would be for Bordeaux, but that would be you know, 10, 15 years earlier. And so therefore, they look for value elsewhere. So I think they're looking at the Rhone. They're looking at Italy, both in Tuscany and in Piedmont. They're looking in Champagne. Champagne has risen in demand. German wines are beginning to come up. And so I would say that those are the main growth areas. California's remained relatively flat, as has Bordeaux, surprisingly enough. And so I think Bordeaux, yeah, I think suffers from, from the distribution mechanism through the futures uh, process that it goes through. And, uh, and you know, two years later, once the Bordeaux has been released on the market, it's still available at the same prices. So I think that is sort of where the trajectory is. And I think we will continue to see more wines coming into the marketplace. I think from, from an online perspective, you have more, more diversity coming into the online auction environment as well, rather than just a live auction environment. So you've got more, more people offering more wines and more price points. So Peter and I often debate investable wine versus auctionable wine. And I was curious on if you had a take, because I, I think of like, when I think of these like cult Cabernets that are really kind of small production, it's really a supply demand issue. And they're just maybe not necessarily available. And I'm curious on your thoughts on investable versus auctionable. And are those two terms different in your mind or are they, are they synonymous? They're different in my mind. I think investable for me is anything that you believe is going to go up in value. And obviously, the most investable goes up in value the, the fastest. And so you're looking at what is really a relatively limited number of wines that have that potential. I think auctionable is a much broader bucket because it doesn't have to be in the appreciable area. It just needs to be in the, it has a secondary market value. And so a secondary market value means that someone will pay, yeah, once it's been purchased, someone is willing to pay and buy it again once it's already been purchased. So for me, that's a much broader bucket. Yeah, there's plenty of wines that haven't appreciated in value that will auction, and some wines that have maybe have gone down in value that will auction. And so that is a, bit, a big bucket. It's, it's basically we will sell anything that's authentic and in good condition. And good condition includes that we believe it is drinkable and enjoyable. And so whereas investable is really a much narrower pool of uh, a subset of those wines, which you know, will appreciate, we believe will appreciate in value over time. Great. Thank you for clarifying. Does that align with your view of it? Yes, because I, uh, like you're always going to be able to sell old school German Riesling like from like 71, 75, 76, like if, if they're in good condition, but they're not necessarily going to appreciate in value, but they're auctionable. Someone's going to buy those. And that's kind of like the one of the examples that I, I think of. You're always going to be able to sell first gross, even, you know, no matter what, like the, even though they may decline in value over time. I mean, if you look at the, um, yeah, the sweet wine industry, so particularly led by Port and Sautern, then yeah, amazing wines, amazing value for money, incredible. And yet, yeah, the, those markets have really suffered over this period of time, particularly uh, through drinking and driving regulations, through a sort of determination that, that people don't want to eat sugary things, etc. And dry is better and, and red is better. And so, yeah, those have really suffered, but they're fantastic wines and will definitely continue to sell. Yeah, I mean, H. Sauternes, unless it's Ecam, is, is, a, is a huge value in, in most yeah. auction spaces. It does mean that, though, there is still some requirements to be auctionable. Right. So there are a lot of wines that aren't auctionable. So it's you, there's some requirements to be auctionable and then even more so to be sort of investable and raise increase in value. For sure. I mean, we, we certainly, uh, I mean, yes, the auctionable is it has a secondary market value, is in good condition, it's authentic. So I'm curious on how much of a premium does uh, good provenance play in terms of selling a lot and how you actually go about communicating that provenance to the buyers. So provenance is very, very important. And I think the market didn't really understand or appreciate provenance 
until Rudy Kinnearwin was incarcerated in that trial. And, and yeah, the, I think people just sort of laughed at it, ignored it, didn't want to listen to it, didn't really care about it. And I think from that point on, suddenly uh, people became aware of it and that they maybe, if they were spending a lot of money on a bottle of wine, they maybe didn't want to be drinking, maybe they want to be drinking the thing that they're meant to be drinking. And, uh, and yeah, wine counterfeiting is a almost perfect crime because it's subjective. And a lot of people don't know what those wines taste like, so if it tastes good, and they read the label and it says, the label says good, then they believe it's good. So I think that was really the catalyst for change in the marketplace in the appreciation of Provenance. And Provenance has really gained momentum and importance ever since that point and continues to today. I think you know, when we've sold you know, wines direct from you know all the top chateaus, Lafitte, Mouton, Margot, O'Brien, uh, Le Monsieur Parla, we, we've sold wines direct from all those properties and they've got yeah, a multiple of the estimates. Yeah. The biggest multiple is probably Chateau Lafitte, which we sold in October 2010 at the very peak of the Lafitte market. And we sold that direct from Lafitte and we, it was a, a $1 million low estimate and it sold for $7 million. So seven times. Another example would be we sold some wines directly from Robert Dryer's personal cellar and we sold a bottle of Romilly Conti 45 from that cellar. Actually, sold two bottles from that cellar, and because the you know the the Durant family had been the agents for the domain La Romney County at that time, the bottle of forty fives had moved from yeah a, a few miles up the road to the Durant cellar, and then we presented them at auction, and that yeah, ends up selling to seventeen times the estimate, achieving the world record price for any bottle of wine at five hundred fifty thousand dollars. And so yeah, would that um, wine be the same from anyone else's cellar? Absolutely not. And so those are sort of, if you like, two ways to highlight the, the fact that how important provenance is. But I think all the serious buyers, collectors in the wine market now really appreciate provenance. They appreciate the story where it comes from. And yeah, our job is to tell that story. A, it's to vet the story. <laughs> um, and B, is to tell the story as to where it what it is and why it is. And that's one of the sort of features of our business in the single owner sales of what we are able to do is the storytelling about the collector. Because I also believe that wine collections really reflect the person who, who's done the collecting. So in a way, a bit like wines reflect the person who makes the wine, you know, wine collections reflect the person who, who's done the collecting. And I think that is, uh, that is true. And so there's, there's a story about that. There's a reason why they have those wines. There's provenance, there's condition, all attached to that. So one of the things that I always think about, especially as I you know talk to and help other wine brands, is how do wineries even think about or how do wines specifically become auctionable or investable? Is it just having good critic scores or are there other things that make it auctionable? So I think the auction market is very good for, if you like, maximizing the value of wines that already have an appreciation and a pull. So then the auction market is not very good for launching a wine out there without any reputation or secondary marketplace um, because no one knows what it is. It's a really narrow marketplace, and that doesn't tend to work at, at all well. But once a wine has a secondary market following and a reputation of pull-through, then yeah, it's a very good marketplace for maximizing and maybe resetting prices. So I would say that yeah, for wineries, you know, some wineries you know, continue regularly players in the marketplace. You know, they monitor it, and they, they want to – have their wines in the secondary marketplace, and maybe those are wines that aren't so frequently seen in that. And other ones maybe would look at it and go like, okay, you know, maybe our, we're not 
recognize fully for the quality we're making or the appreciation or the limelight, or maybe they haven't traveled so extensively and promoted their wines, and that there's an opportunity to A, communicate that, and B, have a sort of a secondary market price reset. So very frequently in, in those areas whereby if you had a direct from the seller's sale, you would achieve much higher prices than the, than the current prices in the secondary market and have a reset. And you'd also have collectors uh, get excited about the wines, you know, go back, pull them out, drink them. It's really important for wineries to have their wines consumed and, and their wines consumed you know, by groups of people getting together, talking about them, having fun with them. Yeah, and, and you know, we've noticed with various different wineries, when they've put their release prices too high, yeah, people have then essentially shied away from them. They don't buy them in the primary market. They then don't open them and they don't participate. I think Chatelet Tall was drawn from the futures markets, maybe an illustration of that again. And so I think there's ways in which the wineries can use the auction market, the secondary market place to their advantage. And it's, it's super important that their prices are yeah, seen to be increasing because then yeah, they will yeah, continue to receive demand for the current vintage. So in everything you discussed there, I didn't hear a ton about, you know, critical acclaim from critic scores and things like that. I'm curious on if a critic scores or certain critic scores actually have an impact on demand or pricing. So they certainly used to. Yeah, I mean, Robert Parker was driving the market, yeah, for yeah, not just Bordeaux, but for California wines, for Australian wines. Same yeah, Rhone, you know, I mean, yeah, he awarded the points and everyone flocked to those wines. And so 100%. He was extraordinarily influential in the price of wine and the price of wine today and the increase in the price of wine. Since he is no longer awarding ratings, I think there is really no one who's going to be able to step into that role in the same way. I think now you have really people looking at aggregating two or three different critics and looking at their different scores and saying, okay, if it's a so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so from these three people, you know, that's the wine I'll buy. And so I think you have that going on and, and people will, will find yeah, different people. So you have a multitude of critics and people who write about wine. But I don't think as one person, if they make a very high rating on it and it doesn't have consensus, I don't think it's going to affect the marketplace. And so I think the market's moved away from that, really, and is not going to be participating in that way. So in terms of auction buyers, what do people who buy from auctions normally look like? Do you, is there a profile of what a Sotheby's wine buyer looks like or a demographic? Uh, not really. I mean, I think they um, in every different form. You know, I think you know, we wish there were more female buyers than there are today. We do see that growing and changing, you know, but it is more gradual than we would like. Yeah, we do see yeah, the age changing. So interestingly enough, this year, 50% of our first-time buyers were in their 20s and 30s. 50% of our buyers in Hong Kong, um, not just new buyers, all buyers in Hong Kong are in their 20s and 30s. And 60% of our buyers worldwide are in their 30s and 40s. So you know, when I first started in the 1990s, I thought I'd say the average age would have been 65. And so I think you know, we have a, yeah, as I was saying earlier, a very, very different demographic and geographic group today that are buying wines, and they come from all different walks of life, all different industries. Um, yeah, it used to be, I would say, in the 80s and early 90s, it was very heavily yeah, finance-driven by bankers, hedge funds, etc. I would say there's been a diversification away from that. Um, yeah, technology, real estate, you know, wherever wealth has been created, you know, in, in the industry. And so it's a much, much more diverse marketplace than it ever was. Much different profile in terms of age, 
and in terms of countries. And yeah, countries tends to go slightly cyclically. I mean, Mexico and Brazil have been very strong at, at different times. And so some yeah, come in, they come out. Yeah, Russia's been been very good at certain times as well. But the consistent ones have been Asia and North America. Um, we've seen yeah, a lot of growth. And with this change of demographic in terms of backgrounds or, or careers that people have that are buying, but as well as, well as age and geodiversity, what if you guys change in terms of like how you approach finding these buyers or getting them to come to your auction site? Like, Have you changed how you approach that for these different regions or these different age groups? Or has it just been they just found you naturally because you're one of the leaders in the space? So, I mean, it's a combination of two things. One is being out and about and meeting people, and that comes back to the social side of things. And, you know, we need to go around and we need to meet people. We need to enjoy good times with them. We need to meet friends of people we know. And so we do network hard and extensively around that. And we do that all over the world. And yeah, particularly in yeah, before COVID and the right to ourselves, we would have a series of events in different countries. So, yeah, for example, in, in for our Hong Kong sales, we would have events in uh, yeah, Beijing, Shanghai, Taipei, yeah, Bangkok, Hong Kong. We rotate different cities in and out of the mix. And we do the same in, in New York and in London. So the social side of that's very important. I think the what's changed this year to a very large extent is the digital tools that we're able to use and to grow our marketplace yeah, through the digital marketing that's available to us and through social media. And so I would say that that, that is probably driving the younger buyers in reaching them in different ways that they're more used to being reached and, and want to be reached. So in general, wine auctions seem fairly exclusive. And I'm curious on how do most people get their start? Like what what's that catalyst for them to start to make their first purchase? You said that in Hong Kong, you had a large range of young people that are buying new. But what is that? Have you guys looked into what is, what is the first thing that makes them click and say, I need to go buy wine on auction? Well, so I, mean, I think it is the overall is the yeah, interest and knowledge of someone. Yeah, the first place you're going to buy a bottle of wine is a retail environment or a restaurant. And so I, mean, I think, it, yeah, buying it at auction does require a certain level of confidence, a certain level of desire, a certain level of interest. And yeah, and that's accumulated. It can be accumulated by people who are very, very young. Um, yeah, we had some great people in their early 20s of, you know, got this straight into it. And it, be, it can be acquired very late. Yeah, we have you know, some people in their, you know, in their 70s who are buying their first wines. But generally speaking, I think it's, it is the desire and it's the, in, yeah, in the enthusiasm is meeting one of us or they, yeah, they're doing it on their own, they're researching it and they're starting out, um, at, yeah, maybe at a lower price point, but maybe they've tried something or they can't find it, yeah, in another avenue or they've tasted something like it, they want to try it. And so I, mean, I think at auction, you've got a huge diversity of wines that come through the auction rooms. And, uh, and there's something for everyone. And so I think yeah, I, either we introduce them or they find us. And I think yeah, the online tools that people have nowadays make it easier and easier for people to do it. I think it's also less intimidating. Yeah, before we did online, live online bidding where we sort of yeah, broadcast the auction, which I think must have been yeah, well over 10 years, probably 12 years now. I think it was 2008 when we started doing that. And we are eight years before the rest of the salaries uh, in broadcasting our auctions. Yeah, before people had to you know, either submit an absentee bid or come along to the auction room or be on the telephone. That was very intimidating for people. Now, yeah, everything's available on, a, on the web, on an app. You know, it's very, very easy to do it. It's done the way that they want to do it. So I think one of the biggest changes which we've done in our business is rather than do things for our convenience, we've tried to do them for the client's convenience. That's on both on the buyer and the sell side. And I think the effort and the continuation down that road is you know, letting people, empowering people to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it is super important. And that's the, the thought for the future. So speaking about the sellers, what do they normally look like? 
<laughs> so, uh, well, for the old, traditional auction business, there's, there's a three Ds, which is death, debt, and divorce. And they all play a good role. And obviously, yeah, unfortunately, during COVID situations, you have more death, you have more debt, and you have more divorce. Um, people are living together and realizing <laughs> that close confinement might be not what they wanted. Um, and so those three are probably increasing and going to increase the supply. For the wine business, we also add doctor's orders because some people, unfortunately, get to the point where their doctor tells them that they need to reduce their intake for whatever reason. But the vast majority of wine comes to us from people who have simply purchased too much that they're ever going to consume in their lifetime. I mean, you have someone like Park Smith who, who used to have 85,000 bowls of wine. Bill Coke, who, who had, you know, <laughs> who had 45,000 bowls of wine, yeah? If you do the math, yeah, you've got to be drinking six, yeah, live till you're 150 and drink six bowls a day to have a chance of getting that. And so many people, and, and yeah, wine's great because we all want diversity, yeah? Because we don't know on a given evening necessarily exactly what we're going to, do, going to want to drink. We don't know what the climate's going to be, what the weather's going to be. We don't know what we're eating. We don't know who we're eating it with. We don't know whether we're in a good mood or a bad mood. I think mood has a lot to do with our wine selection. And so we need diversity in our cellar to, to be able to accommodate our whims and wishes as to what we're going to do. And no one, as far as I'm aware, has, has fine-tuned it that the, they died after drinking their last bottle of wine. And so people accumulate, it's easy to accumulate you know, compared to other things, you know, fine works of art or jewellery. It it's relatively affordable. It is available every day. There's a new vintage every year. There's a new producer to try. So you know, people get the collecting bug. They accumulate you know, too much wine. Their tastes probably evolve over a period of time. I've certainly got wines in my cellar that I will never drink <laughs> and I will sell because you know, my tastes have evolved and I've moved on. And so it's a combination of all that. So the vast majority of wine that we sell actually comes from people, you know, having too much wine and not going to get around to sell. So you mentioned influences of the pandemic driving some of it, but there's also a generational shift with the baby boomers starting to retire and hit one of the D's. Uh, does that mean more supply will come on the market? It'll be easier to find collections to sell? I think, yes, I think that will happen. I mean, I think what yeah, what's interesting in a life cycle is generally speaking, when you know, when people yeah have children, they start staying at home a lot and they start entertaining at home a lot. And then as that as they get older, they tend to start traveling more. The children leave home, go to college, etc. They travel more and more. They eat out at restaurants more. They do less entertaining at home, and so their consumption drops off. And so. Yeah, the baby boomers is certainly going to contribute to that natural cycle of what happens. And yeah, I don't happen to think it's going to be material. You're not going to notice it. You're not going to see it because I think demand's there ready to sap it up. And so I don't think it's going to be a, a material blip for us, but I do think it does help our business. And so for all those who are looking to maybe sell their wines through uh, Sotheby's, what kind of documentation or things do they need in order to sell their wines? So, I mean, in an ideal world, obviously, everyone would have every single invoice that they've ever purchased any bottle of wine or anything else in, in their house. Yeah, that's just not a, a reality for many people. And so yeah, what we're looking for is obviously yeah, to understand where they purchase the wines from and yeah, which wine merchants or which auction houses and whether they're reliable and trustworthy. Yeah, where they've been storing the wine, how they've been storing the wine, you know, was the wine transported? So we go back into asking a number of questions about things and yeah, with a lot of experience, you know, we can understand the replies and navigate the replies very effectively. And so, you know, we would, well, we would like it invoices for everything. Yeah, you know, that's just not a reality. And yeah, you know, and generally speaking, with the older collections, your know, wine wasn't that valuable, and so people didn't keep their receipts. And so, 
you know, we, we will do that. And then, you know, on, on our check-in, you know, we do check inspect every bottle. You know, we verify it and we verify collections and we taste different parts of collections to make sure that they match up with the seller and storage conditions and make sure that we're selling wines that are in good condition. Well, you know, my takeaways are that the silver lining of COVID is that we have more online auctions and potentially more supply of sellers uh, due to a couple of the Ds that you mentioned earlier. So with every guest, we ask the, them to do a wrap-up where they let us know what they think about a lasting trend and a fizzling fad. And we'd love for you to give one of each of those in the wine auction space. So I think the lasting trend for me is the digitization of the business, the empowering of the buyer or the seller to do things when they want to do them, how they want to do them. And that is just going to continue and get better and more interesting and easier and simpler and more enjoyable. And that is not going away. Um, That is digitization and simplicity and being client-friendly is the takeaway for me on that. In terms of um, the fading fads, I would say that probably Bordeaux is, in a way, being the dominant part of our business. It has faded but it will come back. I think Bordeaux is massively underpriced compared to many wines in the marketplace. And it's a, an anomaly. And yeah, it used to be driving our business and now it's a much, much smaller part of our business. And so I think that's a sort of, yeah, I think the fad is that it is not popular and it will come back. And so it's a bit of a reverse one. The rest of the wine world is evolving so fast and changing so quickly and demand is very, very constant and evolving too. I think the regulation, I would hope the regulatory environment in the US is a fad, it's a long lasting fad, but we would much like to see a freer environment in the US, including the uh, 25% taxes. And also hoping that, hoping that the Hong Kong tax um, remains at zero too. So regulation as a fad. Yeah, let's hope that the tariff is a fad. That would be wonderful for everybody. <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. Well, again, thank you, Jamie. It was great to have you. Very insightful. I learned a lot about the auction space and to get it from you, who's one of the leaders in the industry, is amazing. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on your show. It's, uh, it's great to be with you and I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, Shame. cheers. Cheers.